All right, welcome back to the Bread and Butter Podcast. I'm your host, Brecklin, and today I'm here with a very special guest. Her name is Katie Willis. We're so grateful to have you, Katie. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, I'm so excited. Well, we so we have kind of an interesting connection. I think we've actually been in the same place at the same time, but I don't know that we've ever actually spoke. Um, but I grew up <laughs> I grew up with your niece, and she still remains one of my very best friends. And um, we were talking and she was like, you need to have my aunt Katie on the podcast. And I was like, okay, <laughs> tell me, like, tell me the things. And I was like, you know what? The more I heard about you, the more I was like, we're going to be friends. This is going to be, this is going to be good. So tell us a little bit about yourself just to start off, just to start off with a little bit about where you are in life right now, what you love to do. Sure. Um, I am a mama to four beautiful girls, my little women, um, ranging in age from five to 12. Um, we have a little bit of a menagerie at our house. I really love animals. So we've got a lot of different varieties, chickens, rabbits, cats, poison dart frogs. Wow. <laughs> Um, I love to, um, cook and bake, baking, especially I love making delicious things and I love eating good food. Um, welcome to the club. You're in the right place. <laughs> yeah. Um, I really like helping people. Um, specifically I've been volunteering with a group called their story is our story and, um, we collect and share the stories of displaced and resettled individuals, refugees, um, and help to kind of humanize their experience and help others to connect to them. Um, and I've also been a foster mom to an unaccompanied refugee minor. Um, so there's a lot going on, but it's fun. Yeah, that sounds like a beautiful life. Um, really quick, we usually do a little segment that I'm going to cut in half because I know we have a lot to chat about, but I could not have you on without asking what you have been either cooking or baking lately. Like what, you know, it's fall time. What have you been like, okay, this is, this is the best. Okay. So fall equals baking for me. So cooking has kind of taken. It's not as important. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, so I have a Jewish family. Um, my brother married a beautiful Jewish girl. And so I've adopted, well, they've adopted us. We've adopted them. And, um, so I've been making a lot of challah lately and, uh, which is like a Jewish style egg bread. It's like an enriched dough and it's beautiful and braided. Um, and, uh, challah is eaten at the beginning of their Shabbat festivities is Shabbat meal, which is the beginning of their Sabbath. And, um, I made a really special round one that was fig, olive oil, sea salt, um, for Rosh Hashanah, which is the Jewish new year. And then, um, I actually, uh, was with them for their last Shabbat in Berkeley. And I made one of those and just a regular plain braided challah because we were able to celebrate Shabbat with them. So that was really fun. And I've been enjoying that. They are really, truly beautiful. Like I follow you on Instagram, <laughs> so I'll see the pictures. And I'm just so curious. So is it a sweet bread or is it more of a savory? Because it looks like it would be almost like a, I'm going to slaughter this name, but brioche? Okay, so it is a little similar to a brioche dough. Just the plain challah is usually has a little bit of honey in it, so it's lightly sweet, um, but not extremely. Um, but it's got a nice, um, moist sort of. It's got a lovely texture mm -hmm. to it. And then, but the fig one is very lightly sweetened. You put sort of a make like a fig orange paste and spread it on. It's from my girl, Deb, from Smitten Kitchen. I love Smitten Kitchen. She's incredible. So um, it's very lightly sweet. It's definitely not like American sweet breads mm -hmm. or desserts or anything. Just lightly sweetened and really nice. Yeah, it sounds amazing. I Something that I've been wanting to try out lately is, and I haven't actually attempted it yet because I'm waiting for Christmas, but I've been seeing on Pinterest these beautiful shortbread cookies and I've never made them, but they're beautiful. And I've seen cute ones. They're like 
they're like chocolate orange shortbread and so then they'll have like yeah. one half dipped in a chocolate yeah. and then they'll have like candied orange zest yeah anyway that is on my baking bucket list right now so that's I haven't made it so maybe that doesn't count but that's fantastic yeah well my um my grandfather was from his family is Scottish and then my grandmother immigrated from the Netherlands when she was young and so shortbread is in our wheelhouse but I think I've only made it like once maybe twice but it sure is delicious yeah we'll have to keep in touch so that you can give me your baking tips because for sure every time I see what you've made I'm like oh my gosh (laughs) she is a pro it's fun okay well I've brought you on for a lot of reasons but I would love to hear the story and your story is I mean the story of a lot of people um but one of the most compelling stories is a story of you of your brother and of your mother um And so I would love, before we kind of get into it, I would love if you could describe kind of your relationship with both of these people in your life. Sure. Um, I'll start with my mom. My mom was uh, probably one of the most warm, welcoming, loving, exuberant people that I've ever met. And, um, I think as the youngest, so I'm the youngest of eight kids, um, separated from the next oldest sibling by about five years. And I think as a result, my relationship with my mom was really close. She, you know, I was the last, um, she was kind of, uh, you know, not lazy fair, but she would let the kids kind of do whatever, but I think I probably got the most freedom of everybody. Um, but she also was at a point where she could take time to, you know, to spend with me. And it was really wonderful. Like she'd let me skip school sometimes so that we could go shopping because, um, you know, she taught piano lessons after, after school. And so I didn't have a lot of time, but she taught me how to cook and how to bake. And, um, she loved animals and people and was all about connecting. We had extra people living in our home always growing up, and um, that was fun and exciting and a great blessing. She was just a welcomer and um, loved nature and creatures and people, and uh, I've definitely um, inherited that from her. Mm-hmm. And she was also a fantastic writer and kept a beautiful journal, which I'm really grateful to have um, now that she is no longer with us. Um, and then also, Um, my brother, Ben. Um, so let's see, Ben is about seven, eight years older than I am. And, um, a couple of my brothers struggled quite a bit with substance abuse growing up. Uh, Ben was one of them. And then my oldest brother and, um, uh, my, my grandmother always said, if you can't be a good example, you better be a terrible warning. Um, (laughs) and, um, (laughs) Matt and Ben were kind of a terrible warning for me. So I was super obedient because I saw what happened with um, drug abuse and alcohol abuse. But, um, you know, Ben was always a little bit of a somber kid and struggled um, from a young age with depression. And, you know, I really think he was self-medicating. And uh, he was in and out of the house even after my other siblings had left. And um, I don't know how aware my other siblings were of his developing mental health issues. And I don't even know if my parents identified them as mental health issues. I think they thought perhaps that a lot of um, his behaviors were um, related to drugs and alcohol. Um, Anyway, extremely creative, extremely sensitive. Um, He's a beautiful artist and... um, really sensitive to the needs of others, always kind of sticking up for others, the underdogs, um, and um, really intelligent and creative. But there, you know, as I got older, there are several times where he would have sort of big, scary outbursts um, and exhibit some violent behavior. He was in and out of rehab, um, sometimes, uh, you know, brief jail time. And then as it became more apparent that he was struggling with mental health issues, um, uh, treatment centers and mental hospitals. Um, but, uh, 
it seems as though the system was constantly failing him. You know, he was in a, a mental hospital where he was kicked out um, for drug abuse, which makes absolutely no sense to me. Yeah. Um, clearly someone needs more support when they reach out to use drugs than less. So I think, you know, there's been very clear evidence through our family's experiences of massive failures in the mental health system. That's, and I just, from everything that I've learned about your mom, um, you know, I've read your brother's blog. Um, I've read bits of her journal that he has yeah. been so gracious to put on there. Yes. And she just sounds like a really kind of salt of the earth yes. person Perfect in every way. And just yeah. like a Renaissance woman. Just She did everything. Raising, she really did. You know, raising eight kids. We had goats chickens. Um, she was constantly volunteering, cooking for people. She took toll painting classes while raising all these kids. Uh, she learned how to make candy, like, you know, slab creamed fudge and um, often was making delicious things that were like, ooh, and she's like, oh, I'm taking this to somebody else. <laughs> mm -hmm. And then she taught piano. So she was incredibly always busy. I don't remember seeing her rest very much, which sometimes brings me guilt, but um, because I like to take my rest time, she was always moving and it was mm -hmm. um, pretty incredible. Yeah. Well, and then as far as your brother, Ben, he also, to me, sounds like a sensitive, kind kid with his mm -hmm. own yeah. demon. Yeah. And, you know, you think back to that time um, where mental health was really not discussed at length. Do you mm -hmm. know what I mean? Like they're just didn't seem to be a particularly resonating conversation going sure. on about it. It was definitely more, I feel like, taboo to discuss it or openly mm -hmm. discuss it. It's getting better, but I still feel like there's a lot of stigma um, surrounding it, and um, that's challenging. Mm -hmm. And as you watched him kind of grow up, um, what were your thoughts about him? Did you just, because sometimes I think as small kids or as young kids, we don't understand the extent of something that an adult may be struggling with. So were your thoughts just kind of like, oh, Ben, sometimes he's sad. Um, you know, he abuses drugs. How did you kind of relate to him? Was it just kind of like a normal thing that he would sometimes have these outbursts? It was only when I was older that uh, those began to happen, probably um, just in my last few years of high school. You know, he was homeless for a while. He was in and out of the house. I think my parents were grappling with how to deal with his substance abuse, um, allowing him to remain in the house, um, you know, etc. So I think that was, it was tricky um, all around. I don't remember very much from when I was younger. Um, you know, I just knew he was struggling. Um, and uh, I knew that it took a huge toll on my parents. And I think as a result, I tried to be really obedient and not cause any problems because I knew it was a hefty burden for my parents. Um, you know, but he was always kind. Again, he loved animals too. Um, I think that was a little bit of a therapy for him as it is for me and everybody else, right? Um, you know, but in later years, it was always challenging because he'd be back in the house requiring a lot of my parents and I knew it was a big burden and it sometimes took away from, you know, their attention for other things. He would eat my food, which always was hard for me, <laughs> but I still loved him. Um, but the, you know, in the last couple of years of like my high school experience, the outbursts were particularly frightening. Um, but, uh, didn't really think too much of it. I think I was probably more oblivious. No, not really oblivious, but probably just tried to put it to one side. You know, I was in high school and getting ready for my own things and doing my own stuff. So wasn't always at the forefront of, you know, what I was thinking about. Exactly. Um, and I just, I don't know, just I think about the position that your parents were into, and that sounds like such a complex. Yeah difficult thing. I, you know, this child that you love so much and at the same time, you probably are, you know, struggling with your own boundaries. And yeah, I guess I just wanted to shed light on how difficult that would be. 
you know? Yeah, I'm sure. I can't imagine now as a mother what that what that was like for my parents. Um, you know, my mom and my dad, but I think primarily my mom was his greatest defender and advocate. Um, she would write him these beautiful letters, um, you know, when he was in jail for a little bit. Um, just talked about the loss going in and out of those doors and leaving him there when she would go to visit um, and how happy she was to hear his voice if he called when he wasn't at home. So she was filled with so much love and desire to help him, um, you know, as were so many, I think, in our family. But the resources are not readily available, and they certainly were not for my family at that time. Yeah, thank you. So I would love if you would feel comfortable to kind of share um, kind of things kind of with Ben kind of came to a head. Yeah. And really kind of changed your life and your family's life forever. Yeah. So um, he had moved out, I believe, was living with a friend. Um, and uh, he, you know, it was, let's, it was my senior year, um, February of 2001. And um, he got in touch with my parents. And I think he could tell that something was not right, that he was really struggling, um, with, um, his mental health. And, um, he, um, called my parents and they were trying to call around to different mental health facilities to see if they could find some help for him. Mm -hmm. And, uh, everywhere they called was like, oh, sorry, we're full, you know, sorry, you know, the earliest we could see you was in two weeks. And, um, he was clearly, clearly in crisis. And um, so that was one day. And then the next day, um, you know, unable to find somewhere, I think he was really desperate. And he called my dad and asked him to take him to the emergency room. So my dad did that. And, you know, the previous year he had been in the emergency room um, for um, sort of a crisis and an outburst and apparently had made statements there um, about you know, hearing voices, etc., mm-hmm. um, sort of threatening statements about um, harming others, and that was in his medical record. But when he went to the emergency room this time, um, he was in and out in 30 minutes, which is oh, not wow. typical for any treatment. Um, diagnosed with sort of general anxiety and discharged with like um, some sort of tranquilizer. Um, that later was said to potentially even trigger, um, his psychotic episode anyway. Um, and in, you know, in talking to him later, he said, you know, when dad took me to the hospital, I was scared of him. I was scared of dad. I was scared of the doctors. I was scared of mm-hmm. anyone. He I was, was just, just worried. Well at all. No, he said, I was worried that they were trying to hurt me. Anyway, the following day, um, he walked a great distance from his friend's house, um, and, um, was under the, you know, delusion. He had heard voices, seen things. Um, and, um, you know, I was home cooking dinner with, it was Sunday. Um, we had just gotten home from church. Um, a family friend was living with us. My friend, Tina, she was just a couple of years older than me and her family had moved far away. She was going to the local community college. So she was living with us, hadn't felt well that day, and was napping. And um, I was prepping dinner with my mom and a friend from church that had come home with us. Um, and uh, Ben entered and seemed very angry um, and um, unfortunately proceeded um, to attack my mother um, and then later my friend that lived there. Um, so I was present, you know, when I thought about this podcast, I thought, well, do I really want to go into the details? And I don't, um, I think it would detract from the general, um, message that I Mm -hmm. would love to share. Um, but as a result of that, um, my mom and my friend Tina, um, passed away and, um, you know, it was incredibly devastating. My initial thought was, oh my gosh, you know, is mom going to be paralyzed? Um, 
I didn't, I don't know why it didn't cross my mind in that moment that she could die. Um, I made the 911 call um, and then ran to a neighbor's house to try and get help. Um, but by the time the police got there, they were both deceased and um, my brother was taken into custody and I spent the rest of the afternoon answering question after question, telling the story over and over again, um, which was really hard. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, so that that's what happened my senior year of high school. And um, it was really, really challenging, obviously, as a 17 yeah. year old to, you know, grapple with and wrap my my head around that. Yeah. Thank you for sharing. Um, and I just, as this kind of has happened to you and to your family, um, obviously you kind of shared your initial reaction, but, you know, while that was such a, a turning point in your life, I also feel like it was really kind of the beginning of an entirely different world for you, I would imagine. Yeah. Um, so you're 17 years old, you've lost your mother, um, and in a lot of ways, do you feel like you also, in a sense, had lost your brother as well? How, how did you just kind of go about putting things together in your mind? You know, and I don't know if this was my initial reaction or if it's um, what I've come to understand and realize and feel now. Um, truthfully, those months, etc., immediately following are very hazy to me. Yeah. Um, I was graduating um, and I think it was probably my brain's or is probably my brain's way of sort of protecting me from all of that. But I don't remember a lot of things. I don't remember a lot of key things from that time. It was really just sort of survival coping. Um, I had just been accepted to college. So my mom knew that the college that I wanted to go to. Um, and, you know, for me at that point, I thought, you know, all of us were on a pretty good path um, and sort of settled, you know, as the youngest of her children. I was on my way to independence and, um, you know, although Ben was not, um, some members of my family do feel as though we lost Ben. But for me, um, I feel like that experience finally got him the help that he desperately needed. And it's so devastating that something of that gravity had to happen for him to get the help that he needed. And I still don't feel like he's gotten um, the full support that he needs to fully recover, but he is living, um, a, I think, a, a good life, an inde mostly independent life, and he has so much potential. Um, he is functional on his medications. I mean, they do have a lot of side effects that are challenging for him. But, you know, for me now, um, and I think it's taken time for me to sort of develop this, but I've been able to find forgiveness and um, actually in recent years, because of my own mental health struggles, um, I have been able to develop um, more, greater empathy and personal connection to him as I've struggled with feelings of anxiety and un, like uncontrollable anxiety and depression um, mm -hmm. and the inability to do anything about it. Um, so that's been a really unique opportunity to talk to him and be able to personally relate to him on that front where I had never experienced anything like that previously. Yeah. So it sounds like you are currently like in contact with your yeah. brother and have like a beautiful relationship with him. Um, yeah. And I have been for quite some time. I don't remember the first time I talked to him after, you know, that day, but I have been in contact with him, you know, through almost the entire time that he was hospitalized. So he went to a maximum security mental facility. He was found not criminally responsible. And he was there for, oh, a good chunk of time, um, maybe 17, 18 years. 
and then was released in sort of um, into a, like a supervised housing. And, you know, and he worked his way through different stages of the hospital, but he progressed really well. Well, and I, I love, I just am so inspired by that. Just inspired by, I don't know, you just seem very fiercely devoted to to your brother. And not that that should be surprising, but I do think that to me, it struck me as rare. Well, I think, you know, you often hear all of the adages about forgiveness in an already, you know, incredibly traumatic experience. If I were to choose to hang on to uh, anger, and, and it doesn't mean that I haven't had those emotions um, mm-hmm. and bitterness, um, certainly hurt. and um, But if I were to choose to really dive into those feelings and stick with them, um, it, it would make things far worse. So, you know, you hear the adages about forgiveness, that it's not for someone else, but it's more for ourselves, that if we hang on to hate and bitterness and resentment, that it continues to poison us. Um, but I, you know, I feel like it's, it's for all of us, um, the forgiveness and, um, it certainly has lightened my burden and I can't think of anything more that my mother would want than for us to continue to love and support and forgive him. And part of it is I know it wasn't him. Um, yeah. And uh, he loved my mom. Um, and, you know, for whatever reason, I was not a part of that delusion. Um, he thought my mom and my friend were part of a conspiracy against the American government. But when asked why he didn't harm me, you know, he told me to leave. Um, he said, well, she's my sister and I love her. So for whatever reason, um, I was not a part of that. And, you know, part of me thinks that you know, my mother's work on the earth perhaps was complete. Um, and I had more to do. I don't feel that God is up there, um, you know, moving us around like pawns and I don't feel like this was meant to happen. Um, but I also, um, feel confident and comfortable in the fact that, um, her work perhaps was done and it doesn't mean I don't want her here desperately and that she couldn't have done you know, far more good here on the earth than she had done. But that's how I choose to view it. And I think that allows me to reach out with kindness and love to my brother, who I do really love. As you've kind of been able to build this beautiful relationship with your brother, you are also, I mean, 17, 18 is, you know, what, legally an adult, but it's not I don't know. I, I think about myself at 17 or 18 and I was very much a child. Yes. (laughs) Um, Apart from your brother, um, how do you feel like you were able to, what was your process of kind of picking up and becoming an adult? Because (laughs) I think those were the years when I became the closest with my mom. That's when I needed her the most. Yeah. And I just kind of marvel. And I mean, I know, I guess we do what we need to do, but um, I would just love for you to speak to that. You know, things like getting married and going to college and those things that are just such important points in like a young woman's life and your mom was not physically present for. Yeah. So um, my dad remarried six months later, which was a little challenging for everybody. Um, I... Uh, that was very challenging for me. It all came about really quickly. And um, my sister, who I am closest to, was serving in Brazil as a missionary for our church, and she chose to remain on her mission. Um, And then my brother that lived nearby where I was going to school, uh, or when I went off to college, he was newly married and kind of everybody was in their own grief. And so I, I felt very much alone. Um, you know, my dad diving into a new marriage, uh, and I just, um, I met new people, um, made new friends and I, I suffered and struggled with quite a bit of depression that freshman year, but I had a lot of good friends and support. And it's actually 
my freshman year that I met my husband, um, but we were just friends. And, you know, one evening we were picking up my brother from the airport and I ended up sharing my story. I've always been very cautious about how and with whom I share that information because it feels almost sacred to me. And truthfully, one of the primary things is I don't want anyone passing judgment on my brother or on my family. Um, again, because there's so much stigma around mental health issues. So, um, I don't know. It was a really challenging time. My sister came home at the end of that year and we were able to lean on each other a lot. Um, but you know, I, um, I chose to serve a mission for our church and, um, you know, a lot of these decisions were met for me with a lot of anxiety, but I just had to trust in sort of my instincts as well as, you know, as I tried to communicate with God, my Heavenly Father, and figure out what was the best path for my life. And I consulted with my family. But, um, you know, I've since developed a very close relationship with my mother's sister, my aunt, who has really filled in as a mother figure for me, and I'm so grateful for her. And so through all these big decisions, um, you know, these people were there to support me. I did a semester abroad in Vienna, Austria, um, and then about a year after I returned from my missionary service, I married my husband, Bam. But um, it has been challenging. There's been so many times that I have, especially in childbearing, um, as I've had my babies um, and navigated all of this, I desperately want to talk to her and um, communicate with her. Incredibly, though, in each of the places where we have lived, I have, um, and I feel like this has been uh, for sure a tender mercy in my life, and that um, God's hand has been in my life in allowing these people to be in the same place as me. But when we lived in California, where I had most of my babies, I had um, at least four very dear friends that were young, motherless mothers. Um, they had lost their moms at a young age before having children as well. And um, they have been um, and remain an incredible support and blessing in my life and have been here for me through some of my most challenging moments, you know, in the past several years, um, I've dealt with a massive brain tumor, <laughs> um, radiation therapy, um, actually severe, severe anxiety and depression myself, um, some suicidal ideation where I was hospitalized for a week, um, developing epilepsy, um, post-surgery, and um, these women have um, have come like my mother would and um, have spent time caring for my children and um, caring for me. And uh, my aunt has done the same and other family members have spent countless amounts of time. My sister has been here um, for nearly every birth of my children. She'll arrive right after and dive in and help. And she's been incredible as well, even though she suffers the same burden. Um, anyway, it's been, it's been an incredible blessing. Um, and as I talk about, you know, one thing I wanted to talk about, um, as I talk about all of these, you know, hefty trials that I've experienced, um, I think it's important something that's felt important to me um, is that even though my specific experiences are very outwardly sensational, you know, I've had brain surgery, um, you know, just all of these things, they're very outwardly sensational and seem massive um, from an outside perspective. I think that Suffering is universal. Um, we all go through challenges. Um, and um, there are some quotes that I kind of gathered that really embody this for me and what it means that perhaps outwardly, my trial may seem far harder than someone else's trial outwardly, 
but the suffering and the heaviness of it may feel the same. And I don't feel like my types of trials put me on a pedestal that is higher than other people. I have not chosen them. <laughs> um, and I don't feel that God has given them to me. They are circumstances that have happened. And, um, and I feel more than anything that it has connected me to other people um, and increased my empathy. And I have moments where I'm like, I have like a Tevia conversation, you know, Tevia from the Fiddler yeah. on the Roof with God. He's talking about, you know, would it be so bad if I were wealthy? And for me, I'm like, hey, would it be so bad, um, God, if we could just like pause on all these trials? Like, <laughs> yeah. haven't I, haven't I done enough? But um, there is a beautiful book um, that is an interview with Desmond Tutu and the Dalai Lama called The Book of Joy. And they address this. And one of the things that they said, they said, what the Dalai Lama and I are offering um, is a way of handling your worries, thinking about others. You can think about others who are in a similar situation or perhaps even in a worse situation but who have survived and even thrived. It does help quite a lot to see yourself as part of a greater whole. Once again, the path of joy was connection and the path of sorrow was separation. When we see others as separate, they become a threat. And when we see others as part of us, as connected, as interdependent, then there is no challenge we cannot face together. Um, and I think of these deep relationships, one of my greatest friendships here, we moved to Utah about almost um, five years ago. I was able to connect with my closest friend here because I couldn't drive due to my seizures. And my daughter one day said to me, she's like, well, mom, maybe we can be grateful for your seizures because you wouldn't be as close a friend with Whitney as you are if she didn't have to drive you everywhere <laughs> because I couldn't drive for 10 months. And so she took me to the store every week and on my errands and we became such immediately dear friends. Um, and I would not have forged the same relationships with my other friends in California without the struggles that I've had. And so, you know, I really feel that Telling our stories and being vulnerable about them, like it's very hard, even though I preach all the time. You know, my brother, that was not my brother. Um, when I was going through my own mental health crises and ended up having to be hospitalized um, for suicidal ideation, admitting that outwardly, um, I feel weak and I feel that I will be judged um, for that experience. Regardless, I mean, even having brain surgery and seizures, I feel a little bit insecure sharing that because it's your brain. And I, um, I worry about people judging me and being like, Oh, is she okay? You know, her brain's been messed yeah, with. Yeah. And, um, uh, so it is, it is challenging, but I do, um, really feel that it connects us um, as human beings and telling our stories. And that's part of the reason I volunteer with the Refugee Storytelling Agency or nonprofit that I do. Because when we hear the stories of these individuals and when we share our own stories, we are connected to them. We see them as human beings and not as something other than us. Um, and uh, I think that's incredibly important and I think that it would resolve a lot of the problems that we are seeing in the world if we could just pause put aside our preconceived assumptions about other people and um, one of the things that I've tried to focus on with my kids recently and just in my own thinking is that when you see someone that you might jump to judge and we've done this a lot with our kids as we drive around a city and there are um, plenty of people that are living on the street 
my girls will sometimes refer them to, oh, there's a homeless. And I said, actually, sweetheart, it is a person that happens to be homeless. Um, and as I pass these people, um, I like to remind myself that they are someone's son, someone's daughter, um, someone's parent, um, a sibling, and they have a story, probably a very complex story. And I think it's so easy to jump to judgment with everyone. Um, we hold dear so many of the beliefs that we have because of our experiences. And uh, we all have these complex stories. And so um, withholding judgment and seeing people as human beings is definitely probably one of the primary things that I have learned through all of these um, experiences and probably one of the primary things that I hope to um, share with other people. I love everything that you've said and I think it's so interesting that I don't know, just after hearing your story and kind of drinking in these experiences that you've shared and with, you know, the limited knowledge that I have of your mom, it seems like you are carrying her work forward. And it's been so beautiful. And obviously I'm an outside perspective, but being able to see you um, and then everything that I know of your mother, it just seems beautiful. <laughs> like you are just... I mean, obviously you're, you are your own person, but you've also seemed to just kind of embody these deep, beautiful, uh, I want to say like even like feminine carrying ideologies that have blessed so many lives. And when you were talking about the women who have rallied around you, um, I can tell that you are also one of those women. You are that kind of woman. And that's the kind of woman that I want to be, right? Like that... I don't know. And I, I also, when I reached out to you, I'm just kind of word vomiting all these things in my mind. But <laughs> when I reached out to you, um, I had this quote stuck in my head that just would not leave me. And I want to say it's Rupi Kapar and it's the wound is where the light enters you. And oh, that's on my little list. Is it really? <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. We're on the same wavelength. Um, but yeah. that's what your story is to me. And you know, as we all kind of have our challenges and the things that just totally bring us to our knees, I can't help but think, because we are, um, we practice the same religion, I can't help but think that God allows us to be wounded so that we can experience the light entering us. Well, I say all the time in conversations with my sister, <laughs> often when I'm frustrated, I'm just like, refiner's fire! refiner's fire you know that fire is this purifying i mean it hurts and it's terrible and hard but it is a purifying thing um and a quote that goes along with yours um it's a quote by rumi a 13th century poet and it's really resonated with me it says sorrow prepares you for joy it violently sweeps everything out of your house so that new joy can find space to enter. It shakes the yellow leaves from the bow of your heart so that fresh green leaves can grow in their place. It pulls up the rotten roots so that new roots hidden beneath have room to grow. Whatever sorrow shakes from your heart, far better things will take their place. And I really think it takes time, a lot of time to embrace that. And grief and recovery are not linear. I have had times where I can embrace all of these thoughts and feelings wholeheartedly. And then I have had times filled with despair and anger and frustration. And it hasn't been just at the beginning that I felt those feelings. I will feel hopeful and full of peace and joy. And then I, you know, I can also feel those other things. And it doesn't mean that that peace and joy and hope is gone. But I think it's part of the human experience that, and it's okay. It's totally okay. And I have dealt with this in far different ways from my siblings. And that is also okay. I am at a different place. Um, their stories are different than my story. And that is okay. 
um, because their experiences were different and are different. Um, and so, um, you know, I just think that, um, you know, well, well, I share all of these positive things about finding joy and sorrow and suffering and connection, it is also okay to just sorrow and recognize how crappy a lot of this stuff is. Um, because, you know, like in the, in the movie Inside Out, right? <laughs> um, without the, well, without the bitter, we wouldn't have the sweet. And without sadness, we wouldn't be able to experience joy. And I think we often are pushing joy so much, just like Joy does in the movie. She's like, no, I need, it needs to be me. Like sadness, get out of the way. I think the more we just push that sadness and frustration away, the less able we are to feel the joy that we need to feel or that we can, that we can feel. And when you are feel like you're kind of drowning in that grief or that sorrow, because I think it can be easy and more pleasant to talk about, you know, the time when we felt hopeful and peaceful and all of these lovely things. Um, but it can be really, really hard to remember when you are drowning and when you can't feel or remember what it feels like to be happy or hopeful. And I always, when I, when I talk to guests who have experienced things like this, I love to ask them for tangible, I don't want to say tips because that seems too trivial, but when you yeah. really are in the thick of it, what do you do? What tangible things, is it a bath? Is it a call? I just, I think people need more <laughs> ideas because when you kind of get taken over by that, it can be a little bit paralyzing and you're like, okay, for sure. what do I do? Um, going outside has always been one of the um, most healing things for me. And uh, there was a therapist I followed online for a little while and her little tagline was look up. Um, and anytime I look up at the sky or a tree, it really does. I feel like nature grounds us. It certainly doesn't solve everything. One of the great examples that my mother was, was in her journaling and her writing and her recording. And um, one of the leaders in our church, um, Henry B. Eyring, one of the talks that he gave um, in a meeting stood out to me really powerfully, which talks about... Um, well, he talks about remembering, and one of the greatest ways to do that is by writing it down. And um, he says that he received strong impressions to write down the moments when he'd seen the hand of God in his life or the lives of others, and that he also received a strong impression, you know, these things aren't for you, therefore your family, when they may not feel that support and that light. And have I done well with this? No. <laughs> I know that I need to do it. I even got another little tap on the shoulder, I feel like, from God when I was chatting with my vet, of all people, the other day. And I have a shirt that my friend gave me that says, brain tumor, been there, done that. And um, <laughs> I, I feel a little silly wearing it, but I actually love like the fit of the t-shirt, so I wear it. I mean, it does always strike up a little conversation. And he was like, wait, really? Like, did that really happen? And I was like, yeah, I wouldn't wear the shirt. <laughs> I hadn't had a brain tumor. Um, but he started talking to me about what I'd learned. And then he said, have you written this down? And I was like, whoa. <laughs> um, because I had been thinking a lot about the necessity to record um, those tender mercies. Um, and I've gone through fits and spurts of doing it, but um, I would like to be more consistent in recording these thoughts and the times when it's really touched me um, and when I've really been led and felt um, this peace. Because I think that's probably one of the strongest grounding things for me is to go back and remember. You know, I may not feel that way now. And you know, when I was in my deepest, darkest place. Everyone said, you won't feel this way for, for, for forever, you know? And the reason I had suicidal ideations is you feel that there is no way that this will ever change. 
And, you know, I always thought, you know, I don't want to die. But if I am going to feel this way forever, I also don't want to continue to live. Because it's so dark and empty and painful. And, you know, it sounded very hollow when people would say, you won't feel this way forever. But guess what? I am back to me. Um, and I didn't feel that way for forever. And so being able to refer back to those things and remember, you know what? I haven't felt that way always. And so there is the possibility that I won't feel this way always. Um, I haven't felt that darkness always, even in my, you know, even in my hardest times. So, um, yeah, and connecting with others. Whenever we are in crisis, it brings people together. Anybody that's been through anything challenging knows this. People come to you. They bring you meals. Um, and it is almost a letdown when things start to improve and the distancing happens again. I wish we could retain that closeness. You think about any national disaster, 9-11, everyone united. Um, and then everything, you know, disperses. I, I felt a huge letdown, you know, for the couple of months immediately following my mom's death. It was just, it was almost suffocating amounts of support. And then everyone goes back to their normal lives. And actually that is when everything hits you heavy. It's when the realization settles in that, wow, this is my new normal. And I don't think it's that people stop thinking about you. It's that perhaps they get a lot uncomfortable knowing how to reach out and how to help. They don't want to bring it up thinking that, oh, I don't want to bring up this hard thing. It might make you upset. But the thing that a lot of people don't recognize, I think, is you're thinking about it all the time anyway. Yeah. So, yeah. It's not like it up it's not going to make it harder. It might be a relief. Um, and so one of my goals has been when someone goes through a really challenging thing to wait a minute. Um, I had a really dear friend from high school whose wife recently passed away from COVID and they have three young children. And, um, I waited, um, I waited a few months maybe longer. And then I finally reached out um, because people don't have the bound bandwidth to even coordinate their needs in those early days. And I said, hey, I want to send in a meal or something. And um, I know you were probably flooded initially. And he was like, yeah. <laughs> and I appreciate that. Um, and I've tried to remember anniversaries and things like that. Things, days that might be really hard for someone. Just put a little note in my phone and I don't have to do something big, but just reach out to let someone know that I'm thinking of them. Um, anyway, um, I totally swayed from <laughs> your question about um, dealing with the dark times. No, I mean, that was perfect. Reaching out to your people. I think letting people know when it's hard. Mm -hmm. I think people are so worried we have to have this perfect facade. I think, you know, having this perfectly beautiful home, I've gotten to the point that I'm like, you know what? If I wait until my home is in perfect order to invite people over, I'll never do it. And yeah. letting people into our messiness opens, I feel like they are open to be messy with us. They can show us their messiness. And so my kids often roll their eyes. We just met some new neighbors and I brought up my recent brain tumor. It's still very recent. So, but my girls were like, oh, here she goes again. And they said it out loud. And I was like, well, that's a little mortifying. And I was thinking about it. I'm like, well, why do I bring it up? And I told them, I was like, hey girls, I don't bring those things up to like say, I'm so great. I've been through this really hard thing. It's because when I meet someone new, I want to as quickly as possible, let them know hey, I'm a comfortable person. Like I've been through crazy stuff and I want yeah. you to feel comfortable coming to me with your crazy stuff because I'm not going to pass judgment and you can whine at me all you want. Like I will try my darndest not to give advice and just to listen. Um, but I, I, I hope that as I share 
with other people, that it doesn't come across as boasting. I What I want to do is open up that vulnerable space where other people can feel able to do the same with me because mm-hmm. that's where the connection happens and that is that's where we can find I think the joy and the peace that we need and realizing that we're not alone and that everybody suffers and that you can move forward um, regardless of what you've been through. I just feel like that was so much wisdom all in one almost an hour Um, and I think that's a beautiful place to kind of to kind of wrap things up Um, thank you so much for being here. I You're welcome. was um, intimidated a little bit by... <laughs> so was I. <laughs> oh my gosh. I was intimidated a little bit by this interview because I knew that this was going to be really good. I don't know if that makes sense, but I, <laughs> I knew that this was going to be intense in the best way. And I knew there was going to be a lot of wisdom. I was hoping that I could keep it together. Um, <laughs> Me too. And, and you were just nothing but warm and comfortable. You really are. Um, so before we kind of wrap up, I know that you have organizations that you work with that mean a lot to you. So if you could leave those, I would love to link those as resources in my show notes. Yeah, there's lots of places. I had a quote from my husband that I was going to share. He kept a little blog and I kept a little blog when I was going through my brain tumor experience to keep people updated. My husband is a phenomenal writer. So I'll definitely, I I had a brain tumor called a meningioma. And so it's meningioma mama is the, is the little um, site for that. And then I work with, um, their story is our story. So TSOS refugees. Um, And then another one you mentioned, um, the blog that my brother started, some of us have added little bits here and there. So it's kind of collaborative with our siblings that's lessons my mother taught me that have some of my mother's really beautiful writings that relate to so much of this. Um, so yeah, I'll definitely send those through and you can link them in the show notes. They're all wonderful, beautiful reading. So they are beautiful. I spent a lot of time on the lessons my mother taught me and (laughs) I love sharing her writing. It's one of my favorite things to do. Um, actually, in closing, I actually have some of her writing right here that I wanted to share. Um, just because I, I mean, this was actually a very like enlightening, positive experience, but it is also, it's heavy a little bit. And I, this is dated March 24th, 1999. Um, and if I understand correctly, this was journals that she kept while she was caring for her own mother. Who was passing. Yes. And this is one of my favorite quotes. It is beautiful um, and speaks to this story. And when I first read it, I bawled my, I bawled my eyes out. Um, so hopefully I can get through it. Um, March 24th, 1999. I gave mama's little skeleton a back rub just before bed one night. And when I knelt for my prayer, the contours of her wasted body seemed to be still under my hands. I was heartbroken and searching for comfort. I thanked the Lord for the atonement. I've studied it so many times, thought about it occasionally, but don't remember ever wanting it to be a reality more than I did as I thought about Mama's precious body wasting away a few feet from me. As I prayed those words of gratitude, I was enveloped in that feeling best described as flames of fire. Delicious warmth filled every part of my being. I felt enveloped and engulfed in flames. They lingered but not long enough for me. I would have liked to have kept that feeling with me. Those feelings are what I have come to regard as comforter or Holy Spirit. Later, as the ordeal of Mama's physical death, the cold questions crept into my mind. What what if it is all a story? What if this death is really all there is? What if all that was my mother has come to a final end? What a leaden, miserable feeling it was. Thankfully, it was brief. In retrospect, those two strong memories make an easy choice for me. I know which of them to believe. One of them is death and the other is life. One is cold and the other is warm. One is false and the other is true. I believe in the atonement. I believe in resurrection. I believe in eternal life. I thank the Lord. I have been sweetly and personally comforted. May the Lord help me to keep that truth and comfort in my life. 
I um, that has probably been one of my deepest sources of comfort. And I think something that's important about that is that it is a choice. Um, one of the greatest blessings that or gifts that we've been given by God on this earth is that we make these choices. Um, like I said, our circumstances, we don't choose. But what we what we believe, what we feel, what we follow, um, that is what we can choose. And I love her conscious recognition and choice. Um, and then there was a, there's a letter I came across quick, quickly. Um, there's a letter that I came across after her passing that she wrote me when I was at a camp. Um, and I don't know why um, she wrote these things, but one of the things she was talking about how grateful she was for our family and her final, her closing sentence was, I know families are forever. And then she said, see you soon, sweetheart. Love mom. And um, reading that later on, I was like, hey, <laughs> she's talking to me now. Like, I'll see you soon. And um, we're going to be together as a family. And I truly believe that's true. And so I love the intentionality and the choice that she made and that I can make and the hope that I have to be able to see her again and um, that as we navigate all of these challenging circumstances in our lives that it can connect us and refine us. Thank you so much for sharing all of this and for sharing your story and your family's story and your experiences. Um, so thank you everyone for being here for listening to this conversation. I, like I said, will be linking all of these resources in the show notes, so go ahead and check them out there. Um, I would be so grateful if you were able to leave a written review, and I will talk to all of you next week. Thank you so much for being here, Katie. <music>